Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. The difficult teaching of Ecclesiastes warns us that all people share the same fate. This wisdom is pervasive in Scripture, from the violent imagery found in Deuteronomy to the razor's edge of Paul's argument in Romans. There is no difference between Jew and Greek between the wise man and the fool, between the righteous and the wicked. All men share one fate. All things rest in the palm of God's hand. Are you mighty? You will be brought low. Are you humiliated? Sure, you may be lifted up, but then what? Have you heard Deuteronomy? What about Paul's teaching? Yes, you were brought into God's household, but now what? Are you better off than those who went before you? All things rest in the palm of God's hand. He brought you in, and he can take you out. Yes, he can fill you with good things, but he can also send you away empty. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 51 to 53. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 444 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Father Paul often jokes that the Bible isn't good news, and it's not bad news. It's just news. On so many levels, it's important to deal with Scripture as news, meaning to pick up the scroll... And dispassionately hear what the text is saying. It's difficult to do it dispassionately because as human beings, we ourselves are self-righteous and we want to respond to the injustice in the world because we fancy ourselves the ones seated on the throne in the heavens. But we are imposters seated on our own throne here somewhere on the muddy earth, which is a fake throne. We keep hearing that throughout this biblical story. But we still want to be the one to judge. So we get excited, and we say it's good news because we get to smash somebody else. But we all heard what happened when Moses wanted to smash somebody else with the tablets inscribed with the finger of God. Didn't work out so well. At the same time, when we start to realize that the text is condemning us, 
we want to say it's bad news. But this is also problematic because the kind of news it is depends on how you are seated functionally relative to the judgment. If you are a prostitute, it's good news because the judgment is leveling the playing field between the prostitute and the priest, between the thief and the person who always pays their credit card bills on time or always pays their taxes. So if you're the person who cheats and lies and steals and sleeps around, if you're the person who never turned in their homework assignments on time, and you're next to the person who got straight A's or who always played by the rules, who always did everything the right way, the person who gets emotional and wants to use Scripture as a bludgeon against those other guys, if you're that person, it might be good news for you. But then again, once you hear it as good news and it applies to you and you have a clean slate, it becomes the sword of Damocles. Remember, we heard last week that there's a connection between mercy and fear. So, good news, bad news, hard to say it's just news. And this kind of a seesaw motion, where you're excited that the slate is clean, but then suddenly you're in the same hot seat that the Pharisee was in just a few minutes ago, is reflected in this next section of the Magnificat. But always remember that if you're the priest or the teacher who supposedly knows better, proclaiming this news, it's never good news for you. If you're the person who has a few dollars in his pocket, the text is definitely bad news. There's no way to spin it. There's no fancy discussion about wealth that can get you out from under the boot of the judgment of this text. There is no spin. The gospel is bad news for those who have means, for those who have education, for those who are in a good situation of any kind, for those who fancy themselves righteous because they played by the rules. This is not good news. The Buddhists have this understanding that the root of all human suffering is attachment. I believe certain things should be going a certain way. I believe that when I see or hear or feel a certain thing, it means something. And I make these connections and I'm telling these stories all the time. And according to the Buddhists, this is the root of my suffering. When something happens, I determine, is this good? Is this bad? Is this helpful? Is this unhelpful? I think about things in the past. I think about things that could be in the future. I believe my eyes, and I tell these stories about what could be happening. At the beginning of the podcast, Father, you mentioned the thrones of mud that we build. But even though we build them with mud, we cover them with gold, we put symbolic images on them, whether fruit or trees of that sort, natural sort of things. We may have something ferocious like lions or like the giant lions that the Babylonians had in Nineveh. We have all the different trappings we have that make our thrones look and feel and seem glorious. I remember many years ago when we used to have a lot of 
debates about whether it should be illegal to burn the flag or not of the United States. And it was silly because you say, well, this is a piece of cloth. No, but when you burn it, you're burning the freedom that it represents. Yes, but the freedom, is it the freedom to express oneself through burning the flag or does it burn the rights to burn the flag? Like which, it is a piece of cloth in different colors. Yet human beings always want to instill that kind of meaning in it. That's the stories that we like to tell. Scripture is its own story. And Scripture says what Scripture is saying is good or bad. It evaluates itself. We can't evaluate it. It is the reference point. And we don't like when it imposes itself on us. Because we want to come up with our own story. We want to make what is a throne of mud. We just made it out of stuff that we found in the ground that God happened to plant there. And we made something glorious almost to the heavens. This is the story of Babel, right? But the Lord is the one who controls. The Lord is the one who is in charge. And the Lord who ultimately says what is good and what is bad in the end once he's seated on his judgment seat. And so as we read this today, we see that everything is topsy-turvy. Everything that we think is good is bad. Everything we think is bad is good. Everything that we think is powerful is weak. Everything that we think is weak is powerful. God, Because God is the one who defines all things. God is the one who tells the story. When we hear it, it's just news. Don't say if it's good news or bad news, because you can't tell. Only the story, by understanding the story, do we understand if it's good or bad. We can't evaluate. We're not in a position to evaluate. As soon as we do evaluate, we're imposing something on it. If we impose something on it, then it's our story. And Scripture is always pushing back against our story, imposing its own story on us. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. The point being that it's human thought, the creation of the human mind, it's the wandering of human thought, which is non-functional for Scripture. Because the things we imagine and we create with our mind, as you were just saying a moment ago, are not referential. It's not what we invent in our heads that is the canon. It's what is written. And what is written in Exodus is that God shows his nose, his wrath, and scatters the armies of Pharaoh. With his arm, with his mighty arm, he rescues his people from bondage in Egypt. He parts the sea. That's how God shows his strength. That's how he casts down his enemies. That's how he scatters the proud. He subdues the king. That's what this text is all about. And here in chapter 1 of Luke, it has been about the destruction, once again, of the institutions we build in order to enthrone our priests and to enthrone our kings, because the priesthood and the king are linked. Zacharias was humiliated. And the funny thing is, in the Gospel of Luke, the Christ will be humiliated. Mary, we just heard, very literally in the terminology, was the humiliated slave. Because the only one who is not humiliated, the only one who is not put down, 
is Elohim, the Father of Jesus Christ. Everyone must be scattered and humiliated. There is no room for the proud before the face of God. And of course, because I am a Middle Eastern person with a sizable nose, when we were visiting the London Museum and seeing all of the Egyptian artifacts stolen from my father's country, my wife repeatedly had me stand in profile next to the Egyptian statues and pointed out the amazing similarities between my nose and the noses on the statues. So whenever God shows his nose in Scripture in order to express his wrath, I grin, Richard. I want you to know that. A divinely large expansive, wrathful nose is what we all have to fear on Judgment Day. The wrath coming from the nose of God, that's exactly what it is. Now, how does he express that? That is the strength of his arm. And the outstretched arm of his judgment is what we hear about over and over and over in Exodus against Pharaoh. So, it's the actions of power. The arm is the means of his strength. The nose is the means of his wrath and the arm is the means of his strength. And so when this judgment comes, he's not just the judicial branch, he's also the executive branch. He's going to execute whatever punishment he's going to bring out or whatever reward. The arm can also bring rewards. It's up to the bearer of strength to enact whatever's going to happen. And then scattering the proud in their thoughts of their hearts. Again, remember, heart is what we think is the mind, okay? So, proud ipirafani, the ones who appear high, they make themselves look like the high ones. They take themselves to be the greater ones because that's what they do. If you want to stay on top, we know this. Read any business guide written in America. If you want to appear on top, you have to be thinking through your plan. You have to keep thinking one step ahead of all your potential opponents so you can always appear on top. You cannot get to be on top without having plans. Read any business book. Now, that has nothing to do with intentions. Do you want to be on top for good reasons or for bad reasons? doesn't matter. Anyone who appears great, he's going to frustrate those plans, those thoughts of their minds. So you have a mind that thinks things so that you can come out on top. That's exactly what God is aiming his arm at. Those are precisely the ones that are going to be brought down. So what do we call those people in American terms? the successful. What do we call those people in the Bible? Jury is still out. We'll see what happens because that is what happens on the end. And at the end, like you said, Father, the ones who are the highest, the ones who are doing the best, often those are the ones who get targeted. So your success, according to the books of success printed and written in the United States, the situation is going to be very different for those who are shown the mercy because of their fear in the judgment that is presented by this book, Scripture. It's a trick, though, and I really want to stress this to our listeners, because what I see lately online, on church websites, and the way that people talk about ministry, what I see is a kind of 
promotion of the poor as though they are Jesus. And this is deeply problematic because that is not what's happening here in the Magnificat, and that is not what's happening in the New Testament. Not at all. I mean, I want you to listen carefully to what's happening. First, hear Paul's teaching, as I said just a moment ago. You hear the gospel as somebody who was humiliated, an outcast, a sinner, recognized by all as a prostitute, a thief, a harlot, a pagan, a heretic, whatever you were, a Samaritan, whatever you were on the outside in one of the four gospels. And along comes Jesus, and you hear the news, or John the Baptist, and you hear the news of the forgiveness of sins, which is an expression of the Pauline gospel that is enumerated in his letters. You hear this news, and suddenly a great burden is lifted. Your humiliation is removed. You're given membership in God's Roman household. You have a status with an ominous threat that you can't mess it up. You went from being an F to being an A. And you didn't do anything to earn the A, but now you have to continue to get the grade. That's the sword of Damocles. Which means that if you were the one who was on the bottom who has now been lifted up, it's pressure. You are now in the same situation that Zacharias found himself at the beginning of Luke. So how can you tell me, if you can't learn from Zacharias and Luke, how can you suddenly make out of somebody who's a beggar on the street your new Jesus? It doesn't make sense. The only reference is the instruction, which lifts up the beggar and then puts pressure on the beggar to walk according to the canon of Scripture. The same way Zacharias has to walk, the same way that a baptized Roman has to walk in Galatians, that's where we're headed in the Magnificat. We all share one fate. We are all walking the same line under the same scriptural God, under the same pressure, and there's no difference between any of us. There's no distinction. It's a very difficult teaching. We get excited when we hear this, and we start talking like Che Guevara, and we want to have a revolution, and that's incorrect. Everybody hears this, and they pick a side of the argument. If you have learned one thing over the years, learn from us that there's only one side of the argument. It's the side of God, and we are not on God's side. God is against us. In Romans chapter 8, when Paul says, if God is for us, who can be against? He is referring to the court of judgment on that day, should it be demonstrated that we were obedient to God's Torah, which remains to be seen. It doesn't mean that he's on our side. It means that if you obey Scripture, then Jesus will be an excellent defense attorney before the throne of God the Father. He's saying, wouldn't it be great to have Jesus as your defense attorney? 
should you remain faithful to Scripture until that day? It does not mean that we are on the side of God or that God is on our side. Definitely not. So we have to be careful not to create false gods out of this beautiful text. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. In Scripture, repeatedly. The best example, of course, being Pharaoh. The current example being Caesar within the context of the New Testament. But in Scripture, God has brought down rulers from their thrones and exalted those who were humble. Now, you are going to be thinking that you're the humble person that one day will be exalted. But that's incorrect. You should always assume that you are the arrogant and proud who needs to be scattered and humbled by this text. And of course, the word here, Richard, that's used for humble is the same word that was used to express the humiliation of Mary as the slave who was looked upon with favor by God. Sure enough, we're here talking about thrones again. Um, and for some reason, your translation said rulers. It really is the strong dinastas, the ones with power, dinamis, the ones who are going to be brought down from their thrones. So the proud are making plans, the powerful are sitting on thrones, and they're going to be brought down. But here we have the reversal which is that he lifts high those who are humble. And this is related to what was before. It was talking about the humiliation, which is the noun, and here we have the adjective. But it's those who are humble, those who are lowly, and this is the opposite of the proud. The proud are the ones who make themselves appear high, and the humble are the ones who are undergoing that humiliation. And uh, like you said, Father, of course, Sign me up. How do I become more humble? I want to be lifted up by God. Tell me how to do that. This is exactly what the problem is when Jesus is talking to his disciples who want to sit at his right hand and his left hand. What do we have to do to sit on the thrones at your right hand and the left hand? They want to sit on the thrones too, right? Give us the recipe for humility, Jesus, and we'll follow it and we'll do exactly what you say. We will do exactly what you say. Tell us what to do because we want to sit on a throne. Well, you know, Luke makes a shortcut that Matthew doesn't. Matthew, you have to finally get to that discussion. Here in chapter one in Luke, he's like, oh yeah, you're sitting on a throne? Boom. (laughs) You're going to be brought down off that throne because you've got some kind of power. And you see this where people will use humility as a power. They'll use humility as a way to gain power with others. Oh, you know, I don't like to argue. Oh, I don't like to say anything. And then they go and they work behind your back. And then you come back and say, what are you doing? And say, I didn't do anything. I'm just a humble guy trying to sit on the throne. (laughs) This is not humility. This is the imagination, the imaginings, the plans of your mind. How can I become more humble to get exalted by God? This is all about you again. Where Mary is not talking about you, Mary is talking about God. God is the agent here. God is the one casting down and lifting up. 
you want to know what the recipe is. Well, there is no recipe because you have to convince the one who's on the throne. And you know what you mentioned a moment ago, Father, we all want to be on God's side or we want God to be on our side or whatever, but guess what? If you are on God's side, if God is on your side, God can't be a righteous judge because then he would be showing favoritism before the judgment. God can't have friends. If he has friends, then he risks not being just. The worst thing a judge can be in Scripture is partial. Partial judgment is the opposite of wisdom. Partial judgment is the opposite of following God's commandment. If God is your friend, he can't be just. We want him to show himself to be our friend when it comes to judgment, because he may show partiality to us by giving us mercy, but we fear him because he might not. But we can't ahead of time say, yeah, I've got an in with the judge. If you've got an in with the judge, God is not just, and God is not a good and wise judge. So as soon as you say, I got an in, you're preventing God from doing his job, but no one prevents God from doing his job. You're just fooling yourself with your own plans. I have only one word to explain the Magnificat, but I'm going to say it three times, Rich, because I'm a Bible guy and I love Semitic drama. Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy. I could also say Twilight Zone, Twilight Zone, Twilight Zone, because there's a Twilight Zone plot that works just like Deuteronomy. This guy brings a box to your house, and he says, all you have to do is press this button, and you'll make a zillion dollars. Somebody else will die, (laughs) but you'll be rich. And of course, they debate it, and they press the button. At the end of the episode, he comes, and he picks up the box, and they say, where are you going with the box? I'm going to give it to somebody else, and if they press it, they'll make a ton of money. (laughs) Wonder where the money's going to come from. You come into the land at the beginning of Deuteronomy. There were other people living here, Lord. Where are they? I wiped them out. And now I'm giving it to you. And if you mess up, I'll wipe you out and give it to somebody else. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy. It is not, as the old man says, a Hallmark card that you can use to make out of your poor person a false idol. You definitely are on the hook to take care of the poor, but you cannot make out of the poor your new God. Because the poor person is a human being And scripture is a universal critique of human beings. Period. There is only one God in scripture. And you and me and everyone listening are not it. Just as God will take the Canaanites out of the land and give it to the sons of Israel... He can take it away from the sons of Israel and give it back to the Canaanites or to the Romans or to anyone else. 
because he's God, and as you said, Rich, he's the impartial judge. As he says in Galatians, God shows no partiality; he can do whatever he wants because he is God. Period. That's where the Magnificat is taking us. He shows no partiality between Jew or Gentile, between this kind or that kind. So he can fill the hungry with good things, but he can take away what he gives them because once he fills them, they become the rich. Are you understanding what's happening here? Are you beginning to pick up the unfortunate? Situation in which you cannot escape the one fate of Ecclesiastes, even in the Magnificat, which sounds really wonderful, but is actually an ominous, difficult prayer. It's a beautiful prayer, but it's not a lightweight prayer, not at all. Going back to this point that always comes up about rich people getting worried and trying to figure out a way where they can still squeeze in with all their money and the, you know the stories they use to soften the blow of scripture by saying you know it's not money it's the love of money and that sort of thing in 53 we have a strong contrast we have the hungry and we have the rich if you take that as the basic polarity not rich versus poor not hungry versus full Maybe it's the fact that you aren't hungry that shows that you're rich. And the riches, as you said, Father, the good things are the things that come from the Lord. But as soon as you get them, then you're rich. This is even the dilemma that the Lord is fully aware of in Hosea. He laments, the greater they become, the more they distance themselves from me. The Lord is stuck. Do I leave them poor and suffering? Or do I give them what they need and expect for them to leave me and to depend on themselves. There is the human condition for you. Are we going to be asking for God's help, or are we going to be leaving God as soon as we get the help? Those are the two states. And here, he is willing to give those good things to the hungry, and the ones who have filled themselves, the rich, are the ones he sends away empty. These are the two ends. If one is presented with all the good things, do we eat it? Be careful. <laughs> Maybe when you receive, make sure you leave a good-sized portion for those who need it, for others, so that they can be filled. <laughs> Maybe you can preserve your own soul by giving it away. But guess what? If you're going to try to get a throne by being humble, by giving everything away, you're no longer humble. You're now proud in the imagination of your heart. It's painful, Dr. Benton, but that's why we have to keep hearing Scripture and keep being pained because God remains in travail with us, his not-so-humble servants. <laughs> Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.